do, uh, do you, does any one of you have uh, any question or anything that uh, you want to start us off with? Kind of a technical question. Yeah, that's all right. I'll, just, I'll get him next. Thing. Um, when you're meditating, when uh, the fan's going or the, the swamp cooler, yeah. and it's kind of difficult to tell what your breath is at the tip of the nose, and the, there's somewhere else maybe to, to focus on? Well, I, the, you, this is what you're finding, is that with the swamp coolers going, that you can't feel the breath as well? Yeah. It's, yeah okay. Well, what I would suggest that you do is, as much as possible, continue to try to uh, be aware of the sensations of the breath. If they're gone entirely, both in and out breath, uh, for long periods of time, you know, so that, so that uh, th then what you might do is shift your attention to the rise and fall of the abdomen. But if it's just that you can't clearly perceive every part of every breath, then uh, it's still the, the act of, of attempting to observe the sensations even though you don't find them still will serve uh, quite well both as a, a focus for your attention and as a way to uh, increase the clarity of your awareness. So as much as possible, keep looking for the breath. If it disappears, if you can't feel it at all for a long period of time, and so you have no anchor at all for your attention, then shift to the rise and fall of the abdomen. Uh, what most people find is that the longer they meditate on the sensations of the breath, the, the easier it is to detect them and the clearer and more distinct they become even when the breath is very shallow. And so it's sort of a, uh, that's one of the positive effects of, of the training is that the uh, perceptual power of, uh, sens sensory perceptual power becomes greater. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it seems like it's been some time now that, that I've been, uh, it's been difficult to, to find the, the breath. So, I mean, it seemed like it, it just practically disappeared. I was trying to find a sensation and, and it seems that it's been pretty hard to, to locate. But just a couple of days ago, it really seemed huge. It was like it was the, just a big presence, mm -hmm. and it was much much easier to uh, to focus on when it seemed to fill up most of the available space. Yeah. And uh, so you know, since then it hasn't been that that big, but it's it's been better. I mean, does that sound familiar? Yes. It does, and that's it's, that's great. You uh, you're answering <laughs> his question, really. Yeah, that that is what you find is that it will uh, it will become so much more evident than it was. Yeah. That, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <enjoy> that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty good. I'm, I'm glad that you're uh, you're experiencing that. Nothing else? I guess I talk about what's on my mind. Oh, no. 
Okay. <laughs> Julia has some. The access, how accessible is awakening? Yeah, how accessible is awakening? Yeah. Towards the end, you said um, you said that you can access this also. So you, you you gave us a teaching, and you said, and then there are some other ways to access this as yeah. well. And you said through in my I don't remember the exact words, but like guru devotion or like service work, mm -hmm. and you said a few other things. Well, okay, first of all, I don't think I said guru devotion, although no, what I... you said devotion. I said devotion. <laughs> devotion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so can you repeat her question, sweetheart? Yes. Uh, so, so you're wondering how, how it works that awakening could come out about by other means, such as uh, devotion or service, uh, or another way uh, uh, is through suffering, too. That, that's another way. But um, there, what happens in, in a really uh, deep, sincere, uh, devotional practice that somebody's been engaged in for a long time is a lot of voluntary letting go of selfhood. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, in, in some of the theistic uh, traditions like Christianity and uh, Islam, there is, uh, this is the primary path, which is one of, of, of total giving over of oneself. And uh, meditation is made a part of this. Uh, the uh, meditations or contemplations in these traditions are periods of time where one just uh, puts all of one's mental energy into the surrender to the, to the divine and, and to the other this has a very strong conditioning effect on the mind. I can't really tell you too much about how that works because I've never, it's not a path that I've ever followed. But at the same time, from the point of view of the path that I know, I can look at it and I can surmise the important ingredients that I think are probably the same. On the path that we're on, we need to develop very, very powerful equanimity. It's non-reactive reactivity to the pleasant and unpleasant experiences of life. Um, it is the, the opposite of craving, so the more equanimity we develop, the less craving there is in us. And it's the craving that drives the mind's 
grasping and, and, and generation of the ordinary appearances that, that we cling to. Um, in a devotional practice, a large part of the surrender is, is just the total acceptance. Whatever, whatever comes, you know, I surrender totally to the will of Allah or surrender totally to God. And, and so whatever happens, however painful it might be, you know, how, however uh, uh, much grief it may inspire, I, I surrender to that as being the will of the divine. And uh, you see how it's having a very similar effect to what we do in our practice with the developing equanimity. And the other thing that we, that, that in the path that we follow is we come to this place of recognizing the emptiness of self and the emptiness of the world of appearances that we attach to. And the same thing uh, I, I think must take place when a person is in a sincere, deep devotional practice is, uh, well, is the obvious surrender of, of self to that which is higher. And so that's going to, uh, to ease enormously the, the attachment to self that is an obstacle for all of us. But it's also uh, cultivating the attitude that all, everything of the world, this is, just the, uh, this is just the outpouring of the divine, and it's the divine source itself, which is what is uh, most important. So it brings about a turning away from the world of appearances in the same way that uh, cultivation of understanding of emptiness does. So that would be my theory based on what I know of how a devotional path could potentially bring a person uh, to the same place. You know, we're, we're, we're coming from a much more prag pragmatic and, you know, what uh, uh, dealing with kinds of realities that we can discern and identify that yes indeed there is self is illusion yes indeed I see how my mind creates this reality I live in and so forth um, so we don't have to rely so much on, on faith and the enormous power uh, powerful faith that must be developed to produce that uh, sort of effect in a devotional practice so that's how, and uh, I, I could, I could dissect service in a similar way, but I think that uh, you can probably see for yourself. There's a lot of the same thing. There's the giving over of the attachment to self, and the acting from a place of, of compassion and service and love to others. And I'll just point out too that in the uh, in the Vedanta tradition. You know, these are yogas. The, the, what, we, uh, what we are practicing in the particular tradition we're talking about here is what would be called jnana yoga. But bhakti yoga is the yoga of devotion and karma yoga is the yoga of service. And so in the Vedanta there is the recognition that there are these different paths that, that can suit certain kinds of people better. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Good. Well, certainly, 
in these paths that we just talked about and in the path that we're uh, trying to practice ourselves, there is the relationship we have to the things of the world that we bring with us into our practice when we decide to undertake this path. And it is that relationship that must undergo a very profound change uh, if we are really serious. And I think this is something that I can talk to all of you about pretty freely because you, I think everyone in this room is quite dedicated and is, is serious and is devoted. And so, um, you know, the, a lot of people, meditation can help to uh, bring more peace to their mind and uh, more ease to their life. And the skills of concentration and mindfulness can allow them to function more effectively and more successfully in their in their career and their relationships and their family and so forth. And so for them this is a very satisfying result and they're quite happy and, uh, and pleased with their meditation practice because it does improve their life in many ways. But as a path to awakening it requires a much greater dedication than that. Um, at the level of beneficial results in your life, you add 45 minutes of meditation into your daily schedule the same way you add your workouts at, at the gym, you know, and the other things that you do to take care of yourself, you know, your regular visits to the dentist and uh, everything else. It's all part of taking care of yourself and taking care of your life. And so you find a place to put 45 minutes a day of meditation in where it doesn't interfere with this and it doesn't interfere with that and it doesn't interfere with the other things that make up the structure of your life. You know, and if you get really good results, well, you might add in another half an hour in the evening, you know, maybe after you've watched your favorite TV shows with the family and so on and so forth. And once again, it's you're making a little bit of compromise with the demands of your life, but the priority is clear. You have you have your life. This is number one, number two, and number three, and number four. And then here's here's my meditation practice, and then and then here's my uh, uh, here's my exercise at the gym, and here's my other things that I do. Right. But as a spiritual path, you change. You have to reorder that, and study, practice, and, and reflection, uh, practice of mindful awareness, go up to the top of the list. And the other things are still important, but they're where they rank in the order of importance is is below that. And this is what is called renunciation. And uh, if we go back to the origins uh, of this tradition, renunciation was pretty extreme. You left behind everything. You left behind job, home, parents, family, wife, children, uh, money, 
everything in exchange for a set of robes and a bowl. You know, and, and that was basically it. And you made the commitment not to let anything else interfere with your spiritual practice. Even the daily necessity of eating is reduced to one single meal a day for which you would knock on a few doors, two or three or four or five, or however many was necessary in order to get enough food in your bowl to get you through the day. As soon as you had enough, you stopped knocking and you sat down and ate it because you weren't allowed to set or store up any food for tomorrow. You weren't allowed to go and knock on 10 people's doors instead and get enough food. So, you know, was, even the act of eating was turned into something that you uh, definitely did with mindfulness, but took up the, but involved the minimum commitment of your time and energy. And so that's a pretty extreme uh, example of uh, renunciation and dedication. Uh, out of 24 hours a day, you know, uh, uh, you attend to the various needs of the body, and that's it. The rest of it is spiritual practice. You listen to teachings, discuss the Dharma with your fellow, uh, with your fellow uh, renunciates, uh, and meditate. So, so that's, uh, in some ways, a romantic ideal, uh, wonderfully effective, uh, not necessary, because there's another side to it, too. If you live outdoors, then although you've given up all of the ordinary worldly uh, assaults on your time and energy, you do take on a different set. There is the weather. There are wild animals. There are insects. Mosquitoes, flies, uh, all kinds of stinging and biting insects uh, can make it difficult to meditate and, and practice. So, you know, we can look at that as an example and say, well, how can we emulate that uh, and how can we fit, how, how can we live a life that allows us to uh, maximize our, our practice and be really serious about achieving a spiritual goal without going to the extreme, uh, I think I did mention it last week, of you know sleeping under freeway overpasses and uh, eating at soup kitchens, which would be the equivalent nowadays. And if you did that, you'd find that it was fraught with all the same kind of problems. The bugs would still be there, not so many, because you're living in a city where there's a lot of control of things like that. But then there's the uh, other people that would try to bug you for your bowl, just in case you had something in your pocket. you know. And the, the unfortunate people who would be better off in some sort of a, uh, an institution because they suffer from schizophrenia who want to sit down and tell you all about whatever it is that they tell you about and so forth. So it's not a good way to go. But as lay people, what can we do? Well, there's the monastic opportunity to renounce the world and I will go in the monastery. I don't know how many of you are familiar with modern Buddhist monastic situations. 
is very interesting. I think probably most people become monks and nuns thinking they're going to have all of this time to practice and study. Instead, they put on their robes, they take their vows, and they're put to work. You're in charge of blah, blah, blah. And they work, and they work, and they work. And I've had, I've had monks and nuns that you know, come to teachings that I do. And in conversation with them, they don't have time to meditate. They don't have time to study. Or the time they do have is very, is very little. Because monast monasteries have become big institutions that are part of uh, institutional religion. And, you know, there's, there's the monasteries that have to be made, and then there's the temples, and then there's all the ceremonies that have to be performed for the lay people. So they'll make their donations to support the monasteries. So that the monks and nuns don't have to work for a living. Ah, but <laughs> they're too busy to practice and meditate because they've got to keep the whole system going. So what I want to talk to you about is how what I think in the world as it exists today, the renunciation and becoming a dedicated lay practitioner and maximizing your opportunity to study and practice within that context. Because I think that's actually, in this day and time, the best way to go. I think it's far superior, far effect, more effective than becoming truly homeless or entering these uh, highly structured monastic systems. To become a dedicated lay practitioner and to effectively renounce the, uh, the, the world in the sense of reordering your priorities so that you can uh, you can achieve awakening as soon as possible in your life. What that involves, of course, is looking at where all of your time goes. And now in the Buddhist day, a lot of the people that became bhikkhus and bhikkhunis left behind their spouses and children. I don't think that's a good idea. I know some of you have families and it would be the last thing that you would consider doing is abandoning, you know, saying saying to your wife, well, you know, you, you look after the children, I'm off to... Uh, I, I don't see how that would be considered ethically or, or morally acceptable, certainly in, in today's So, some of you have families, some of you have jobs and careers, but the question is, what changes can you make in order to take your practice as seriously as you'd like to and develop it as, as fully as you would like to? And there's basically two things that I see. One is you eliminate a lot of things. You prioritize and you look at and say, this is what I'm going to keep and this is what has to go. These, these are the things that are not contributing. They, they're not leading uh, me closer to nirvana. They're not enhancing my understanding. They're not helping me to help the world to become uh, 
an abode of awakened beings. So scratch them off the list and, and uh, make use of the time that that frees up. And the other thing that is very important and very valuable, uh, very effective, is that you direct all of your practice towards being continuously mindful so that Indeed, although you still may spend a certain number of hours each week at work, that uh, you learn to make that a meditation. You learn to make that the kind of meditation that contributes to the insight that leads to awakening. The same thing with your, uh, your family, your relationships. Uh, your spouse or your partner, your children, your parents, uh, your siblings, and your relationships with them. First of all, you may not need to spend as much time with all of those people as you had been, and there may be some sacrifices, and there may be some period of adjustment. You know, if your if your family, if your parents, or whatever expect that every holiday and every birthday and things like that, you're going to get together with the family and spend a whole day. You might have to change some of that. But nevertheless, you are, there are people that you care about, but make that into part of your practice. Practice mindfulness in those situations. And boy, that, you know, a lot of mindfulness is learning uh, about the things that drive us the, uh, at the deepest level, the craving and the aversions and the desires. And you're going, to, you're going to confront them in the most powerful possible way in family situations. So if you can develop the mindfulness and sustain the mindfulness in those interactions, great opportunity. You know, better than a, better than a two-week retreat. <laughs> <laughs> so, but in, in all of these things, you know, be, be, be mindful and try as much as possible to make every moment and every activity to be a part of your practice. But renunciation has to come from a really deep level and maybe that's the place to start because uh, when it comes to giving things up, and renunciation is all about giving up things that you like, or things that you're attached to, or things that you feel uh, obligated to in some way, and that create anxiety and disturbance when you don't do them, that create a sense of loss or grief when you don't have them. That's what the renunciation is, is about. It's about learning about those things and confronting those things so that you can let go of those things. And you have to start before, you know, I never ask anybody in any part of the practice, don't try to force yourself to do something that you're not ready to do. And in the meditation practice, I've told you before that I realize the reason a lot of people get stuck and don't have a lot of success in meditation 
They try to force their mind to do something that it's not ready to do, instead of just doing the practice and bringing themselves to the place where they are ready. And it's the same thing if you want to make the kinds of changes in your life that are going to allow you to achieve the ultimate goal. You, you can't just say, well, I'm, I'm going to force myself to give up all of these things. You've got to start with saying, okay, these, this is one of the things that I'm attached to, and so is this. These are the things that I'm attached to. Let me explore and examine that attachment. Let me start applying my mindfulness there. Right away, you're practicing. You start applying your mindfulness to the things that you're attached to. You come to the point of renunciation when you start having insight that, well, the pleasure that I get from this is impermanent. It's transient. It doesn't really give me the satisfaction that I think it's going to. As a matter of fact, when I reflect on it, most of the time, it's a bit disappointing. And when you see it as it really is, and that really is how most things are, that when you look at the time and the effort and the, and the sacrifice that goes into them, and then you look at the quality of satisfaction that you get back from them, and you see how temporary it is, how unpredictable it is, how easily it's lost, how often it turns into its opposite, and you, you pursue something that you want and, and some accident intervenes and you don't get it and the negative reactivity and the unhappiness that it produces in you. When your mindfulness starts to reveal the true nature of your relationship to these things to which you're attached, the attachment starts to fall away very easily. You just simply find that you don't really need that as much as you thought you did becomes a lot easier to get up. And the practice of mindfulness then will lead to the renunciation that allows you to develop the skills in the practice of mindfulness that make it even stronger and more effective. The, the you know, uh, in a lot of our meditation practice where advise not spend too much time thinking and analyzing, engaging in discursive thought. But in terms of looking at our life uh, and understanding what's important what's not, and what's not, this is a really good place to make good use of, of analysis and discursive thought. To see what is, what is consuming you and what, is, what you are attached to and what is worth really is. Not an easy thing to do, but you know the question is, in terms of your employment and what it takes from you, and how much money you need, it's very important to examine these. And um, some of you I I know have, and there is a very wonderful thing called uh, the uh, I think it's called the simplicity movement or living simply. Yeah, right. So this is what you want to do. You want to see, what do I really need? And how simply can I live? Short of moving in, in, under a, a freeway over the past, what do I really need? 
how much of my life do I really need to give up to have things? And how much of my life's energy do I really want to uh, give up to have things? And the things that you have, what purpose do they serve? What's worth keeping and what's not? You know, you may or may not keep your DVD player. It might depend on how much value you find in using the DVD player to uh, uh, learn the Dharma, to see video recorded uh, Dharma talks, or to uh, watch uh, things that are in one way or another inspiring and enlightening and things like that. But your life is full of all kinds of things that the, the actual need for, you know, it's very worth examining them and deciding what you do need and what you don't need. It's not that there is an ideal and that eventually I'm going to be rid of all my material possessions. You might, and for some people that might be the right way to go. For others, it might not be. The question is, for you as an individual, how can you turn your life into a, a, an ongoing spiritual practice where you maximize the time that you have available to do sitting practice and you likewise maximize the time that you have available to study Dharma in various forms. For some, it might be reading books. For others, it might be listening to recordings or going to, uh, to Dharma talks. Uh, for somebody else, it might be associating with Dharma friends and discussing things that, that uh, you have heard or read or, or so forth. But making the room in your life uh, and making use of uh, the time that you have for study and the other thing is uh, reflection, cultivating a habit of reflection to reinforce uh, your practice of mindfulness. Because just like uh, in meditation, it's, it's hard to remember to be mindful. So, renunciation. We basically renounce things when we come to understand that they are incapable of providing us with the satisfaction that we thought they did. And then we replace them with the things that we have come to be convinced will provide us with the satisfaction and the happiness that we which the assumption here in everything I've said is that you've already figured out that true happiness doesn't come from the things of the world. It comes from uh, the attainment of the uh, goals of the Dharma practice. Actually, it comes from the actual practice of the Dharma itself. You know, the, it's, not the, it's not the destination, it's the journey. That uh, more, more satisfaction, more happiness, more bliss, less suffering comes from living the Dharma than living the, the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And so that's the kind of, that's the kind of renunciation that I would 
encourage you to engage in. And I'm hoping that this little uh, this little discussion right now will uh, strike home, will encourage you to look more closely at your life and what you're doing and what you need and to make whatever adjustments are appropriate. Um, I will say something though that to do not, do not be too short-sighted. Be realistic. Uh, you do have you know, you, you do have a good possibility that you may keep on living for a long time. And uh, you're going to have needs in the future and it's going to become more difficult to fulfill those. Um, one thing, and I can attest to this from first-hand experience, that poverty is very time and energy consuming. <laughs> So, in, in your process uh, of refining your life and uh, practicing renunciation, be realistic, and be, be practical. Otherwise, you might find yourself in a situation that is, uh, that in terms of your ability to practice the Dharma, you're worse off than when you started. So, you know, I, I don't, wouldn't, wouldn't want to be responsible for steering anybody in, into that kind of situation. So, but, but please examine, examine your dedication. Let's take another step back. How, how far along are, the, are you on the road of being dedicated to this practice in a, in a very, very deep way? You wouldn't be here if you weren't dedicated to a certain degree. I mean, this this is, by most people's standards, uh, a sacrifice. You know, one evening every week I come and show up for a meditation and a teaching, uh, and I, I don't get to eat supper, and I can't do anything else, and I do this uh, every week, and, uh, you know, some, some of you may come some distance. So you're already showing some dedication just to be here this time of night, probably without supper. <laughs> and that's great. But look and see how, how, how far along that particular path you are, and whether you're ready to move further or not. Because it does take a lot of dedication in terms of the accessibility of awakening. It is very accessible and potentially accessible for almost everyone. But at the same time, I know that almost everyone isn't going to even come close because they won't, they won't make the effort. But you are already, by being here, uh, you're part of a much smaller slice of that whole who has that much more dedication. But to, to take advantage of the fact that awakening is truly accessible means that you're going to have to practice in a very diligent way, and it's going to have to be a primary focus in your life.
What do you have to say about that? Oh, good. All right. There you go. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're quite far along the path. Far along. <laughs> Very glad <laughs> to hear that. But I do have a question to what you said at one point. Um, you talked about facing an attachment and not to force that, but just the awareness of that attachment is a meditation practice. So where's the fine line then between laziness, oh, I know about all of that, I'm just sitting and observing it and not changing it, you know? Well, I... What's that? Repeat the question. Where's the fine line between uh, uh, mindfulness of your attachment as a means of overcoming it and and just being lazy and saying, oh, well, I know I have these attachments. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't force it, it's fine. You know, it goes by itself when it's ready. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Good. Well, that's right. Uh, uh, there, there, of course, needs to be an element of understanding. I mean, you have to not misunderstand and think that, well, all I have to do is know that I'm attached and it'll go away by itself, because it won't. <laughs> you know, uh, which, if you, uh, if you ever, probably when you were younger, but if you've ever had a romantic attachment, you know, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way with any of our attachments. Uh, To practice mindfulness is to be, is to, uh, the the practice of mindfulness is a penetrating awareness of the attachment. It's getting right into it and understanding it. Seeing that there is an attachment is only the beginning. It's where, what are the roots of that attachment? And the other practice of mindfulness is examining the process of being attached and seeing it as it really is, you know. Um, You're attached to something and so you do it. And if you examine it mindfully, then you begin to, it begins to be very apparent what the real reward is compared to what it, what it costs you, and you don't stay. You you don't stay attached when you start to realize the cost, the true cost-benefit analysis of something, and that's how mindfulness works. So if your mindfulness isn't cutting to that level, it's not going to work. And so, uh, you very well might, kind of say, probably will find yourself, because of the depth of your attachment to certain things, uh, mind, your mind finding crafty ways to avoid really confronting it. Mm-hmm. Probably will happen. But sooner or later, and with any luck sooner, you become aware that that's happening. And then you have the opportunity to focus on, on that process that's taking place in your mind as, as well. But you, it takes a lot of honesty. Um, the direction you're moving is, it's easy enough to, where, where you want to do, what you want to do is you want to get to the place where 
uh, you love practicing the Dharma and living the Dharma so much that it's all you're really interested in doing. And you do the other things that you need to do just because they need to be done. And you make them into your practice. That's where you want to get to. So that, you know, you, you may still have a job and you may still have a family and you may still have various responsibilities and you may still fulfill those. But you're in this place of, of the Dharma, learning, understanding my the daily growth and insight that I have is so wonderful and so exciting that that's what I get out of bed for. And I do these other things because they need to be done. And But I love, I love the Dharma so much that I'm going to make everything that I have to do into a Dharma practice. That's where you want to get to. And so if you know where you want to get to, then use that as your reference and you look at how you're dealing with any one particular thing. You know, your favorite addiction or whatever it is that you're being lazy about or whatever it is you're procrastinating about. And when you compare the two, you know, then it should be pretty easy to see. Yeah, see what you have to work on. Yeah. It's wonderful what you said. I mean, that's where you want to get to is where, where I, yes, you want to practice Dharma. You want to go here Dharma. You want to meditate, you know. That's, that's there's nothing else I can think of that happens on a Thursday night in Tucson that I'd like to do. <laughs> you know, and uh, if you're a long way from there, and, and, and you're thinking, well. Well, I don't know if I'd ever get to that place. Don't worry about it. It's all right. You go from where you are, you know. But this practice and what you're getting from it and the information that you get from the Dharma talks and study, uh, just let it, keep, let it keep feeding you, let it keep nourishing in you, and you'll keep growing in the right direction. So don't judge or compare yourself. You know, you're absolutely fine where you are. As long as you're moving in the right direction, you're absolutely fine where you are. As long as you're still moving. <laughs> yeah. question is that um, you began by pointing out that uh, in, in the rules of monastic order they're not to go to plays and entertainments and things like that. Uh, 
from there to the fact that that uh, yourselves and, and, and most people uh, do entertain ourselves, perhaps not so much with plays, but with uh, watching television and movies and things like that. And then also there is the playing of music. You mentioned you play piano. And so the, the question really is, is there a hierarchy of things that are more or less uh, either wholesome or unwholesome or, or more or less detrimental? Well, I, I think obviously there are, and, and you know that already, that if you're serious about the Dharma, attending uh, uh, boxing matches and uh, <laughs> dog fights. <laughs> uh, and, and so we can see that there's a hierarchy. If you're going to attend movies, there's some movies that are going to be in their impact on your psyche are going to be much more unwholesome than others. So uh, I, I think you already know that there is hierarchy. But I think maybe the question you're asking is, uh, you're saying, if I'm going to take a look at my life, uh, what kind of standards do I use to decide you know, uh, what things to focus on changing uh, first? Or what are more, what's more important than what's not? So, why do, why don't you approach it this way? That meditation practice takes time. Dharma study takes time, and so anything else you're doing is competing uh, with those for the available time. So, if you are accustomed to watching movies, watch wholesome, uplifting movies. Watch Dharma movies. Actually, boy, this is a total aside, but you know, we should make up a list. I know a lot of you know Dharma movies, and I know some Dharma movies, and there's some wonderful Dharma movies that weren't originally made as Dharma movies, but they really are. Matrix, of course, is one. But there's one called Groundhog Day. And there's a bunch of movies. <laughs> you know that one? Yeah. Anyway, but you can watch you can watch movies that stimulate you to think in terms of the Dharma, or to think in a wholesome way, or that are uplifting, or that are uh, of a nature to arouse compassion for people who are suffering, rather than watching movie, movies that are only, they're, they're just uh, de deliberately designed to titillate your most basic instincts and, and to lose you in some period of time in uh, uh, violent or otherwise uh, undesirable fantasy states. But also, how many movies do I watch? And, and how much time do I have to, to practice and study the Dharma? And maybe, maybe you could 
decide to uh, reduce somewhat the amount of movies that you watch. Most people watch television, I believe, at least if they watch network uh, programs, dramas, and things like that, for pretty much the same reason that people drink alcohol or some people might smoke marijuana. You know, so television is very much a drug designed and intended to put you into a comfortable state of dullness and to uh, extract you temporarily from being a fully conscious being, uh, usually because we carry a lot of stress that we don't know how to deal with. And so we turn on the TV and get lost in it for a while. So uh, examine the reasons why you do what you do. You know? Well, what we're carrying away, if you don't have the TV or some other addiction, um, how do you become comfortable? <laughs> I mean, I suppose you meditate, right? Yes. Do you, well, there's, there's two things here. Yes, if you meditate, as your meditation practice becomes more successful, what will help addict you to that is that you find that you handle the stresses and difficulties of life much more easily. And if you, as soon as you begin to experience that, then it becomes, uh, it starts to become easier to make that kind of choice. But the other thing is part of this whole thing that I'm recommending that you make some changes in your life that make your life more conducive to practice is going to be to examine the sources of stress in your life and see, you know, do I really need those? This is a part of the whole, if, if there's something that's present in your life that's causing a lot of stress, there's a reason why you've got it in your life. It's because in some way or another you're attached to something. Or and somewhere or another, you have the belief that that the stress that you are experiencing is preferable to whatever would happen if you weren't doing that. You know, as a matter of fact, I, I hope this doesn't apply to anybody here, but very often people are in very stressful relationships. You know, and it's hard to practice because it's such a stressful relationship. And that why are they in that relationship? Well, they're afraid of what happens if they let go of it. You know. So, uh, and that's just that's just an example. It could be your job. You know, your job might be really really stressful, and uh, of course you need to make a living. But do you need to do that to make a living? You know, where's the fear that's keeping you from making some change? Where's the desire? Where is the attachment? So the other part of what I'm suggesting is that you look at the sources of stress in your life because stress gets in the way of the spiritual life. Uh, part of the motivation for giving up the world and taking up robes was to eliminate the stress. And this is described in some of the sutras, you know, but uh, it was one, one of the kings asked the, asked the Buddha, said, so, What's this all about? What's the advantage of, of uh, taking taking up the homeless life? And the Buddha gave him a long, detailed explanation that went right through to the, the 
uh, complete end of suffering that comes with awakening. But he started off with giving him, you know, some some examples of, uh, you know, uh, the, the king's own situation and the situation of members of the court and somebody in the society who was uh, uh, a slave and so forth and said, you know, see how much better they'd be off if they gave up robes and yeah, I see that. So, I mean, the whole idea of, uh, of this was also to eliminate a lot of the stress that's in life. So that's one way to look at this whole thing that I'm talking to you about. I put it in terms of time and energy, but stress consumes time and energy. So another way you could look at it is, how could I take a lot of the stress out of my life? How could I simplify my life in terms of stress? And, of course, not all stress is bad. And we're not looking to turn into, you know, uh, pet cats. <laughs> uh, where we, uh, the biggest problem of the day is deciding which rocking chair to sleep on. You know, uh, <laughs> and we deliberately undertake some tasks that uh, require energy and stress and, uh, and effort. But we want to be very discerning and we want to look at why are we doing this and, and, and is it really worthwhile? Maybe doing some stressful things that are of great benefit to others, in which case you may look at them and say, okay, well, I'll keep doing that. Can I come to you, Pam, right after Larry asked his question because he was trying earlier. So. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, is it possible to go to the other extreme and get burned out on your practice? Uh, the question is, is it possible to go to the other extreme and get burned out on your practice to overdo it? If you're not, if you're not practicing in the right way, it's definitely possible. Um, I like to say that diligence is required, whereas some people would say that effort is required. And the problem is some people are very, some people can be very driving and compulsive. And they can make meditation practice instead of being an interlude of, of, uh, of peace and letting go in their day. It can be a, a period when they are driving themselves and forcing themselves just as hard as, as if they were working on some huge project that all kinds of things depended on. And that's not the way that we want to do it. Uh, we should make an effort, but we should try to make a joyful effort. And if we make a joyful effort, uh, and if we recognize that uh, we may have and some people much more than others, that we may have developed certain patterns and attitudes that if we bring them into our practice are going to make our practice become uh, difficult, then we can definitely overdo it and we can, we can definitely get burned out. But if you keep your practice uh, joyful, if you, you know, I, I don't think I can ever stress too much the importance of the attitude that 
if you do the right things and if you do them persistently, the results will come. And that there is, there is no self that can make things happen in a particular way. Do you ever recommend breaks from practice? Breaks from practice? Changes in the kind of practice? For example, mindfulness practice can become very tiring. I mean, uh, eventually a person will come to the point where there's a natural level of mindfulness that they exhibit effortlessly. But the practice of being truly mindful is tiring. It takes effort. And so don't try to be don't try to do a tiring practice all the time. Do mindfulness practice and then combine that with samatha practice, tranquility that produces joy and peace and equanimity. And and that's not it's that's not really taking time away from doing the spiritual work. It's doing a different kind of spiritual work because the samatha develops the uh, tranquility and equanimity that you absolutely have to have to awaken. You know, uh, there are seven factors of enlightenment and uh, investigation and uh, energy are uh, two of them and they are really what constitute the practice, uh, when we say the practice of mindfulness. But the others are equally important. And they are, uh, uh, well, mindfulness is one. Mindfulness in itself is, is actually enjoyable. The diligent practice of mindfulness can be tiring. But in addition to that, there's concentration, there's joy, there's tranquility, and there's equanimity. And these are all pleasant and satisfying and they are necessary for enlightenment. And so spend, spend an appropriate amount of time cultivating them as well as, as uh, pursuing insight. And this is a way to keep your practice in balance. Another very important practice is uh, loving kindness, the cultivation of compassion. Um, actually, I should say, Let's not limit it to uh, loving kindness and compassion. There are uh, those, those are two parts of a practice that's called the the, the four divine abidings or the, the Brahma Viharas, uh, which are loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And so, part of a proper spiritual practice will include the practice of loving kindness. Uh, practice of compassion. Sympathetic joy is is taking satisfaction in the happiness and the success uh, of others. Uh, and then, of course, there's equanimity. So a balanced practice, a balanced practice will not lead you to burnout. If you start feeling that your practice is, is having that effect, then you should examine it carefully. Uh, talk to a teacher because it's an absolute sure sign that your practice is out of balance.
Jesus and, and so on, it, it really struck me um, that what you're really talking about, it looked at um, in a slight different way, is creating a, cap, a canvas or a tapestry of your life. Creating what kind of tapestry or a canvas? Of yeah, creating a tapestry. Yes. Because um, all the elements are there. When when we identify something as beautiful, um, it is most always in balance. It has a focal point. There is even some tension in it that creates interest and you know dynamism between yeah. elements. Mm -hmm. There's color. There's sound. Or whatever. I think most people don't think of themselves as artists, but as I hear you talk and talk about this contemplative life, I see you talking about all the elements, about making a beautiful tapestry. So I think in that way we are all artists. We are all striving to be artists. We are all engaging in an artistic process. You're absolutely right. I'm going to make no attempt to repeat that. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. You know, a, a life... I mean, all, your life is is a work of art, and that's how you should think of it. Yes, it is. It is the most creative thing that you are ever going to do. <laughs> it's how how you live your life, and yes, all these different elements and weave them together properly. I I, I think you know I. I I speak of the Dharma, but the Dharma is shorthand for overcoming your suffering and the suffering of others. It's, it includes uh, implicitly and explicitly uh, love and compassion, joy and happiness. Um, it, it means engaging, you know, uh, it means engaging in the creative aspect of life. And so, uh, really what I've been suggesting tonight is is you clean up your palette so that you can really get to, to work here on this creative activity. And that reminds me, to, to go back to uh, uh, what Peggy was talking about earlier, playing music can be a wonderful meditation. It can be a wonderful thing to do for other people's benefit. Uh, but Music itself is a meditation. It is a spiritual practice. And uh, if, if you have that skill, uh, if you have that skill and if you have some talent, then absolutely make that a part of your practice. So playing the piano shouldn't be something that you say, well, uh, is this taking away from the time that I could be doing walking meditation? It's like... Oh, I'll make sure that I'll do an appropriate amount of piano playing meditation in my life. <laughs> so, I'll tell you what I'm looking for. I want some people who uh, have, are, are just going to make that dedication that whatever it takes they're going to uh, turn their life into the perfect creative work of art by awakening in this lifetime. That's, that's what I'm looking for. That's who 
I want to spend the most time with, uh, working with, and, uh, you know, to, to make it a really great creative work of art is to uh, not only achieve your own awakening, but understand how that came about so that you can do your best to both inspire and guide other people to do the same thing. So, uh, the world needs it. The human race needs to become awakened. Uh, our biological evolution has brought us as far as it can and we've been so successful biologically that we're just about to destroy ourselves and do uh, great harm to this beautiful planet that we live on in the process of destroying ourselves. So it's time for it's time for the next thrust of spiritual evolution to take place. We were born into this world with with a predisposition to craving and acting out of craving. And it made us successful, but now it's going to destroy us. So we need to we need to overcome craving. And not only that, we need to reap the reward of, uh, of happiness and freedom from suffering. I have no question at all that human beings have the capability to solve all the problems that we confront. It's just that we have to stop coming from a place of uh, selfish greed and hatred and ignorance. And so, uh, and it doesn't mean that everybody in the world has to become a Buddha. They don't. We just need enough Buddhas sprinkled around everywhere to influence things enough so that the standards change, the values change, and we make solving our problems uh, we make coming from a place of love and compassion be what moves and inspires us, not, not greed and hatred. Uh, boy, I've talked past the usual time. But anyway, I, I, I look at what's happening in this country right now, and uh, we have a president who wants to reform the health care system in this country. And that is such an important thing, such an incredibly important thing. But I see all of the selfishness and the, and the ignorance. The ignorance is really in incredible. And in a way, I've all, I, I, I wish that I could go to Washington or, you know, sit down with Barack Obama and say, look, you know, you should appeal to people's best natures, you know, stop talking about how if we don't solve the health care problem, you know, it's going to be an economic disaster. That's appealing to the wrong side. That's what everybody's been doing all along, you know. What we've got to do is, is see everyone as having the same needs and suffering in the same way we do. We need, this country needs to come to a place where they say, 
It doesn't matter how much it costs. I mean, after all, in every war we've ever gotten into, it's never mattered how much it costs. I mean, if it doesn't matter how much it costs to kill people, why should it matter how much it costs to help people be healthy and, and live? You know, and I, I, I would love to be in a society where that's the value, where all we would debate is, is the hows and the best ways and so forth. But we wouldn't get stuck on a question of, well, it's going to cost too much money to allow everybody to receive medical care. Well, what an absurd idea. But, you know, but that has to come from a place of love and compassion. And, and you know what? It's not going to cost any more money. As a matter of fact, I think, look at all those people that are doing all this arguing about it. You know, they've graduated from Harvard and Yale, and they have their lawyers and their all kinds of professional people. They're very, very intelligent. If they weren't locked into this terribly unwholesome way of thinking, and they put that same mental energy and their same in intellectual capabilities into solving the problem, you know, if the, the problem is to deliver everybody the best possible health care at the lowest, uh, at, at a price that we can all afford. I know they could solve the problem. I know they could. And they could solve it easily. The only thing standing <coughs> in the way is locked into these old ways of thinking, you know. And some of the ignorance, uh, you know, the uh, government death panels, right? I know you probably already know this country is filled with people whose lives are being determined on the, by the basis on the basis of death panels that consist of accountants and businessmen because you know if you get if you get a form of cancer that there's not that doesn't respond well to a standard form of treatment and there's an alternative treatment available the insurance company is going to put your case in front of an accountant, you know, and whether you live or die is going to be decided by accountants, you know, and, and, and so the things that people worry about, the, this this obsession with greed and money and, and things like that, it has to change. I don't know if it will. I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime, but you know. I'd love to see all of you get on board. I mean, this is the reason for renunciation. This is the reason for dedicating your life to your own awakening, is because if you become awakened, you can help awaken other people. And if enough of us become awakened, maybe we can change the direction. You know, It's like we're all in, a, we're all in the same boat, this canoe, right? Sitting right here. Over there, about where the fan is, is a waterfall with a thousand-foot drop, and the stream is moving very quickly. You know, we've got to steer it away. We we can't, you know, we've got to change directions, and uh, that's the way that I see to do it. And and it's not even not even asking you to go to a place of personal self-sacrifice. I'm just saying, awaken so that you can be free of suffering. So that you can be happy in a way that is not subject to the changes of the world. So that you can be motivated by compassion instead of desire and aversion. And everything else can flow out of that.